Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live, multi-speed technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. This is another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. I also want to take a brief moment to mention our really cool call-in widget over at asknoahshow.com. Head over to the website. Click in the lower right-hand corner. You'll see a button that says call into the show. You'll be able to click on that. Now, this is a really fantastic, cool piece of technology, guys. It utilizes WebRTC, which means that you don't have to have any software installed. It means you don't have to have an account. It means you don't have to pay for minutes. You just click on the icon, and it connects you. Secure, private. Uh, we don't track anything. We don't keep any information. Um, and so it offers... Uh, I. Well, it makes you, it lets you be private and it lets you participate in the show very easily. So, uh, quick mention for that, as well as, of course, all of the other ways. You can join us in Mumble. You can call us on the phone. You can email us. Tons of ways to get involved with the program. This hour, my guest is Drew DeVault. Drew joins us remotely. Hey, Drew, welcome into the program, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Thanks for taking the time to be here with us. So I understand that you have uh, a couple of cool projects uh, that you're continuing to work on. And uh, so we just wanted to get you on the program and kind of pick your brain with it. So I guess let's start with this. Tell us what uh, is it ARC is and why did you decide to develop software like this? Yeah, it's pronounced ARC. It's um, an email client for your terminal. And uh, I built it because I was getting sick of MUT, which is another uh, more venerable client for your terminal. So very loosely, this is a rewrite of MUT, uh, which I think is interesting. I'm, I've heard of a couple people that have used MUT, but I I understand that um, that that uh, you have to, you you've looked at it and you said this isn't quite meeting my needs. So I guess let's start with this. What makes it different from MUT specifically? Uh, quite a few things. So um, first of all, it's uh, a lot more modern in design, so it has support for different. Um, mail backends and is designed to deal with networked email better. So, like, I log in for my email through IMAP, which Mutt has a hell of a time with. Um, and it's also got a couple of innovative features, like an embedded terminal emulator, which behaves kind of like Tmux and can show you terminal panes inside of the email client, which is used to like render HTML emails or add syntax highlighting to diffs and patches, that sort of thing. So, it's got a whole lot of different design choices that all sum up to a, a better experience, I think. Now, you, this is not the first time that you have done this, right? Like, there's a couple of different projects that you've gotten to the point where you've looked at them and said, listen, this is a really great project. It solves a lot of problems that people want it to solve, but I think there is a better way to do this. You've gone out, you have done it a better way, and large portions of the community have agreed that that your idea was superior. Is that the case uh, with ARC? Is, is, this, is there a pattern here of rewriting software that doesn't meet your needs? I mean, yeah, I don't have original ideas. I just take other people's ideas and do them better. Sure. Yeah, that's a fair answer. Um, I guess l let's let's touch on this a little bit. What is your target audience for Mutt? There's probably somebody out there, and they're saying to themselves, self, 
I don't need a an email client that runs in the terminal. I there's nothing wrong with a GUI email client like Thunderbird or a lot of people these days. Honestly, Drew have gone to just webmail clients, right? They open up a web browser, they open up yeah. Chrome, they open up Firefox. So what what is the target audience for somebody that wants to use a, a CLI based email client? Well, I say the target audience is people who are already um, heavy email users and especially developers that are email users because tying into my Sourcehead platform where everything is driven by email, um, I spend a lot of time in my mail client and I, I get work done in my mail client. And so I, it's worth the, the extra investment in a tool like Arc to, um, to be more productive with something I use every day, all day. So is this one of those things where you're spending a lot of time in the terminal and you are doing... Um, you know, develop software development and maybe some some light server administration. And you're saying to yourself, "I need to be able to keep an eye on my email." This allows me to to do that, or is it so? It's like that contact your brain not switching context as often, or is it one of those things where you're just in the terminal, and so you like applications that run in the terminal? It actually goes a lot deeper than that. So yeah, I do like working in the terminal a lot, and Arc plays into that. But um, it's an essential tool and my software development workflow. And so was Mutt before I wrote Arc. Um, on my Sourcehead platform and on many of the other projects I work with, we use mailing lists to collaborate. And that's different from, for example, GitHub, where you go to a website and you set up some sort of pull request type of thing to contribute code. Instead, I get an email with the contribution in the email and I have to review it in my email client and I, I reply to the email to add my feedback and I pipe the email into Git to pull the patch into my local Git repository. It's something that is core to my workflow. Is this one, uh, I, I guess I have to ask, Drew, is this, uh, is this a function of SourceHut, the way that it delivers those, uh, you know, those requests? Or is this something that you, that's the way that you prefer to work? So you have, you know, you're, you're, you're taking in the input that way to source does SourceHut allow you to con make contributions the same way somebody would on like GitLab or GitHub or, or even Fabricator? Uh, no, not really. SourceHut doesn't, doesn't take that approach. But it's also not an entirely original feature in SourceHut because um, the way Git was originally designed to work and the way Git itself is maintained and the way Linux is maintained is through these mailing lists. Uh, different mailing list software than SourceHut uses, but SourceHut embraces that mailing email-driven workflow, and Arc builds upon it further to provide a comfortable development experience with just free software on a distributed system, no centralized power, none of that. I get, let me ask you this. This is not, I, I actually just mulling over in my head if I even wanted to go down this path or not. I think that I do. Um, last week, I'm sure you saw the kerfluffle that occurred with Canonical's decision and then reversal of decision to preclude or exclude... Um, 32-bit libraries and then reintroduce them, right? Um, sure. So th th one of the reasons that was cited to me by other people that were very upset about Canonical's reaction was they claimed, despite the fact that Canonical has been having this discussion since 2014, it's not it, that's not a legitimate reason to say that the community didn't have a right to be outraged because uh, it was all occurring on a mailing list and they didn't believe that a mailing list was an appropriate way in 2019 to communicate an effective workflow. So I guess I'll ask, as somebody who seems to prefer uh, to work that way, do you think that, that a mailing list is still the best way um, to, to have ongoing asynchronous communication with your teammates? I do think that, yes. Um, I think the, the, the problem that causes people to believe otherwise 
is not necessarily a flaw with the workflow or the approach because the benefits are pretty pretty clear, um, but rather because the past decade or so of email development, maybe even the past two decades of email development, has been a kind of dumbing down of the system. Um, it's been you know overrun by graphical email clients, the introduction of HTML email, the uptick of spam emails, and companies sending you their newsletters and all of these other things that makes email a less enjoyable experience has been pushing people out of their inboxes. But if you use, that's part of why I use tools like Arc, which makes the experience much more comfortable. And um, I don't think that we should throw out the baby with the bathwater in this case, because yes, people have been working and getting used to worse ways to approach email, but at the same time, all of the advantages of using it are still there. What is the advan- What are the advantages of using a mailing list style workflow instead of a things get submitted into a central place, it tracks changes, the traditional software workflow that we have come to love with places like GitHub, GitLab? Well, there's um, both philosophical and practical advantages to using an email-driven workflow. So okay. on the philosophical side, um, email is an open and standard protocol which is well-supported by hundreds of implementations and has been for almost 40 years. It's also very fault tolerant. It's distributed and federated. Federated in the sense that your email address is you at you know google.com or yahoo.com or whatever as opposed to your Twitter handle is you at twitter.com and it can't be you at anywhere else. The federation is a strong point and the resilience is a strong point but also just that it's um, decentralized and free means that you know there's no corporate interest there who's trying to extract value from you by scraping your emails to show you ads or anything to that effect. Um, and the, I suppose, practical reasons to prefer it is that um, if you're not using a mail client that, um, you know, is holding your hands like Thunderbird and trying to make, you know, a more user-friendly experience at the expense of power user features, um, the flexibility of the workflow is really great. So you can do things like uh, easily automate sending emails from your servers to get status reports or alarms um, because SendMail is very widely supported. Or even just participating in conversations can be really convenient because there's all sorts of tools for filtering emails according to custom rules that you can take advantage of. Um, and if you have a nice client like Arc, it becomes really seamless to just participate in those conversations. And it's a uh, it feels good. It's nice to, to use a workflow like this that doesn't depend on anything proprietary, but at the same time is a is a better experience, in my opinion. Would you classify uh, Would you classify Arc as an email client specifically for software development? Are there any tools that make it particularly advantageous to somebody who is doing software development and working in the CLI, or is it really just a better CLI mail client? I think that uh, there's a number of Arc's features which are there specifically to um, to cater to the software development experience and software developers present a clear case where the trade-off of having to spend time learning and configuring a new email client is outweighed by the productivity advantages if you use a mail-driven workflow. But it's not just good for software developers, um, even if a couple of features are specifically for software developers. So it's also just a nice email client. I, again, we talked a little bit about this. It's hosted on SourceHut. For those of you who don't remember, uh, Drew was the started to develop SourceHut, and it is a competitor to GitLab to GitHub to things 
like Fabricator, Drew has his own ideas of what makes for a better workflow development. Uh, we talked about that in a previous episode. We'll have that episode linked actually in the show notes today. But one of the ent- one of the best answers I think you gave me from that interview that stuck with me, and and it's kind of what I associate now with Drew Devault is I asked you why don't you host your own project on your own development platform? That is to say, why don't you host your all of your projects or every project that you work on? on source hut and your answer to me was because you didn't want to disrupt the workflow of other developers and so not every development tool fits every developer and you wanted to be accommodating of that and i found that to be a a a very uh, an answer of high integrity for a leader and and i I had a lot of respect for that particular answer Uh, so i guess i'll ask what's new with source hut how is the development of that platform coming along well i'm flattered to hear that stuck with you um but SourceHead is going pretty well. Arc is hosted on SourceHead, but that's because SourceHead embraces the email-driven workflow that Arc is designed to work with. So it makes sense to build a community on, on a platform that meshes better with Arc. Um, but the platform is doing very well. Uh, development keeps chugging on. We're coming up on 10,000 users. Uh, I'm doing it all full-time now, which is really helping things out. Um, I think Alpine Linux is getting ready to switch their mailing lists to SourceHead mail. Um, so things are going quite well. Is there anything in SourceHut or the or your email or Arc the email client? Is there anything that would solve the problem of a discussion that has that has a reoccurring and, and continues to to come up over and over again, and a way for people to separate? I guess the important issues like we're going to pull thirty two bit libraries out of Ubuntu from the hey, Joe said one time when he put his mouse cursor up in the upper left-hand corner of this particular window when Thunderbird was layered two-thirds of the way over, it turned gray for a second or whatever. You know, that, How do we distinguish the important issues from the non-important issues for people? And does your platform do anything to solve that? Or is that just a function of when every all the information goes to all the places, we just have to deal with the fact that there's a lot of information in all of the places? I think that Source had helps with this sort of thing, but uh, the underlying problem is a social one. So one way the source that helps is that it has a really comfortable um, email archive interface. So you can search through the archives of the of the mailing list and you can see which discussions are generating the most uh, discussion and so on and so forth. But that doesn't fix the underlying problem, which I think is the um, lack of effective communication from Canonical. So. Perhaps if I was working on uh, Ubuntu and I wanted to, to consider a dramatic change like this, I might start the discussion with um, the other developers on maybe a development-focused email list where the, the signal-to-noise ratio is higher than the average Ubuntu user cares to read. Mm. But then as we come to a um, some kind of internal consensus, it would make sense to post an announcement to a, a lower-value mailing list that Ubuntu users should be subscribing to, which invites their thoughts and participation as opposed to, you know, handing down an edict from above. Absolutely. I love that. Ah, that's great. Again, another example of great leadership. I love it, Drew. Hey, you know, you said that you're working on this full time. That probably means that you don't have another, if you do have another job, it's probably some sort of a part time job. So I'm guessing there's a way for people to contribute monetarily if they'd like to support the project or if they'd like to get involved in the help of development. How can they do that? Well, um, there's a couple of ways that I that I make money. Um, the first and most direct is that I just accept donations at drewdevault.com/donate uh, for all of my projects as a catch-all, um, and I, I get a sig- significant amount of support from the community there. Um, but the larger bucket now is that SourceHut has paid accounts, so when you sign up, you're given the option to 
pay for your account. And about 10% of SourceSet users have gone ahead and paid for their accounts, which I'm very thankful for. And together, this sums to a, a livable wage, so I'm able to focus on my free software projects full-time, and I do not have another job. Drew Devalti is the lead developer of ARC and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Drew, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the program and chat with us about your project and about your ongoing efforts to further uh, free and open source software. We certainly appreciate it. We'll get you back on the program soon. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for taking the time to be here. We appreciate it. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. You can make your voice heard, become part of the program, or join us in our interactive mumble room. We'd love to have you either way. Hey, so the Raspberry Pi 4 is out. I did manage to find a reseller that had one. I was able to place my order. Uh, and then uh, the rest of the week was, quite frankly, filled with some disappointment. And uh, we'll dig into that. So... The promise of the Raspberry Pi 4, which we talked about at considerable length last week because I was super excited about it, I thought that this was going to be the Raspberry Pi that would finally open up the Pi to desktop daily driver style computing. I thought this was going to be the ARM equivalent of like the maybe the lower powered end of the Intel Nook. You know, the general purpose computing that you could just install and use as a day-to-day thing for browsing the internet or checking your email or stuff like that. Well, Two major, major issues with the Raspberry Pi 4, and I wanted to bring them to your attention. The first is the Raspberry Pi 4 claims that they have two 4K outputs. Now, I only have one 4K monitor, but even that one 4K monitor does not work terribly well. Um, I it's I seem to have... I didn't find a problem when I loaded Kodi onto it. And so if you run open ELEC or something like that, and that's the only thing the computer is doing, uh, you won't have any problems at 4k. If you want to do anything at all, as far as like desktop, you know, some light video editing, or if you wanted to do any sort of even playing 4k videos while there is a functioning desktop environment running underneath and a full distribution, not so much. It, it runs for the most part. Okay. Um, but it does hiccup every here and there. Um, one thing I was able to try is if you turn the resolution down and drive it at 1080, it appears to be fine. Now, I've still not tried to do that with two 1080p monitors. That's something I'm going to try later this week. Um, but I think the ability to have dual displays is pretty much a necessity for a lot of people uh, in 2019. I think there's a lot of people that find it hard to do their daily job without having a second screen. I come from an environment where I have six screens down in my lab downstairs at my home. And the reason that I have those six screens is because it allows me to multitask easier. There is no such thing as true multitasking, right? We just, we become better at tolerating what we call context shifting and context shifting is basically your brain's ability to move from one task to the other. And so when you go from, you know, Firefox to mumble or from mumble to Thunderbird or Thunderbird into the terminal, that context switching causes you about a 23 minute penalty. And so having multi-monitors helps with that a little bit because my, I'm still switching tasks. I'm still, still switching context, but I'm not having to open a program up, get into whatever configuration page or whatever layout or whatever thing I need to be in to do the work. I just throw my mouse up there and start working. Um, and so when I, I find myself a lot when I go back to just working on my laptop, if I'm out at a client or I'm in a hotel or something like that, finding myself being less productive because I feel like I don't have enough screen real estate. And... Um, so I've started you I've tried all sorts of things. I've tried using an ultra wide monitor. It's okay, it works a little bit, but really I'm a multi multi monitor kind of guy. And so when the Raspberry Pi 4 came out, I thought, you know what, I'm gonna try this as as a daily driver desktop. Like there's plenty of places where I don't need a very powerful computer. 
this studio right now, this is one of them. Like the computer that sits in front of my face. I have the chat room up. Let's see. I've got the chat room up. I've got Cody MD up. I've got Sublime Text up. I've got Telegram up. And I've got uh, C file running in the background. Like that does not require a ton of power to make that work. And so my hope was that we could get a desktop style Pi. My ho hopes were further encouraged by the fact that uh, the there are desktop cases being made for the Raspberry Pi 4. So they essentially take the form factor of the Raspberry Pi 4 and they stuff it into a desktop case form factor that closely resembles the Intel Nook. And uh, and so have it show up and then the video not perform terribly well was a little bit disappointing. But something that was that I probably may have not even noticed because my Pi was in a case, but my friend Zeb noticed was the incredible amount of heat that is generated from the Raspberry Pi 4. And at first I actually thought there may be something wrong with his Pi 4. And uh, then I noticed that there was a bunch of internet articles that were referencing the same thing, that there was, there was all these insane amount of heat being generated by this device. Now, we're not talking about it warms up a little bit. I'm saying that it gets so hot that it is physically impossible to touch it, to plug cables in or out of it after it's been running for a little bit. And if you did force yourself to touch it, you would burn your hand. Uh, to be fair, if you put it inside of a, inside of a case... Um, none of the parts that are exposed, at least on mine, heated up to the point that they were painful. I mean, they, you could definitely tell the thing was getting warm, um, but it, I, I wouldn't have classified it as something that hurt my hand. Uh, now, I'm using the Flirk, uh, the Flirk case, and so that's an aluminum enclosure and specifically designed to dissipate heat on all those things. I also think it happens to look what, like one of the nicest cases out there, but uh, there's a major heat issue with it. And so th those two issues combine the heat issue, if you think about it, it at first, I was I kind of blew it off because I thought to myself, well, the issue is it just needs to be in a case. And frankly, we should just put these machines in cases. We shouldn't be running them out in the open. But actually, the more I think about it, it is a problem. And the reason is because it, it precludes that particular device from being used in a project environment. You can't give a kid a Pi 4 and say, here, go play an experiment, because if they do, they're going to they're potentially going to burn their hands. And that is going to be, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a non-conversation start. If you ask me, cubicle, Nate joins us in our interactive mumble room. Hey man, welcome into the program. Hey, it's good to be back. I actually have some thoughts on the, on the Pi four. Yeah. So it seems like to me that maybe, is it possible? And I could be wrong on this and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm dead wrong. Is it possible that maybe we've reached the limit of the arm technology and maybe it just can't, uh, meet the uh, capabilities of the x86 architecture? Um, I think it's possible that we've reached the thermal limits of the ARM architecture and any increase in power from here on out means that we have a cooling problem that we have to address. Cause it seems like to me like we're trying to make this uh, device do a lot um, a lot more than what it's, 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 it's capable of doing. That maybe maybe we're actually we're, we're going down the wrong architecture for these small... Yeah useful devices yeah you could be right i guess the only i guess what i would tell you is this inside of our pockets are perfectly functional day-to-day -day functional computers and they have arm chips in them right so i feel like to a certain extent it may be a a, a retooling process to get an operating system that functions well on an arm computer but i do believe it's like uh, with the exception of one Samsung Galaxy Note, I think for the most part, nobody has ever really complained about, uh, you know, heat problems 
inside of a inside of a mobile phone. Like they get warm, yes, but they stay completely functional. And most importantly, and this is the part that I think the Raspberry Pi Foundation would do well to listen to, they perform to the advertised specifications. So if, if you buy a phone and it says it will output 1080p video, you can plug a, a connector in and it'll actually output 1080p video. If it says it has a given resolution on the screen, it has a given resolution on the screen, and that is taking into account the fact that people have apps and they're going to tax the system a little bit. What I was disappointed with with the, with the, the Raspberry Pi 4 was if they had advertised it as a device that just did two 1080p displays, I would have tested it that way. And if I found that it would have gone up to 4K, I would have been like, oh, that's cool. But the the but when you advertise, when you sell the device as, hey, this has two 4K ports, and then I try to run one 4K monitor and it doesn't work very well, it, it kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth. You know what I mean? It could be a driver issue as opposed to maybe a, a hardware issue. Could be. I, uh, I tried... Uh, 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 Brain fart. Linux Mint. Not Linux Mint. Linux Mate. Ubuntu Mate. There we go. Sorry. I, my brain had a mental lapse of sanity there for a moment. Uh, I, I installed uh, Ubuntu Mate and, tr- and ran that for a little bit, and then I tried uh, the Raspbian when I was having tr- trouble. I had, again, I talked to Zeb, I think, on Sunday, and he had said that he had some issues with the video output. At least I think he did. And he was using Raspbian. So I, I kind of ruled out it being a software issue, um, but... I mean, I shouldn't say ruled out, but it's it's it seems that it is a more widespread issue. I, I mean, I might just have to come back and accept the fact that these devices are not meant to be general computing devices. They're meant to be toys to play with and, and kind of tinker around with. And every once in a while, you'll find something like uh, Volumio that is a literally a commercial grade quality product that you can turn a Raspberry Pi into. I think that happens. I think I should just stop expecting it, maybe. It could be. That's was, that was just my thoughts. Thank you. I appreciate it. Two bit. You had something to add? Right. Can you hear me? Okay. I can. Well, there's a couple of things I've heard when it comes to the Pi Four. One of them being the uh, the chip itself was made on a larger form factor compared to the previous one, mm-hmm. which is why it chews up a little bit more energy and is outputting a bit more heat. Oh, okay. And the, uh, and the operating system it's using is actually based on a beta version of Debian, and there are some driver issues that they're still working out, such as it can't boot from the uh, USB; it can only be booted from a micro SD right now. Right. You know that you bring up an interesting point. So what you're saying is it may actually be something that is sol- solved in software later on down the road. We may not be stuck with this forever. Right. And there is also I've heard some thermal throttling that goes on with the chip itself when it particularly gets hot. So there might be some other software that they need to work out to help it try and keep itself cool when it starts heating up like that. You know, the more I think about this, it's actually, that's an interesting point. And I I guess where maybe where we get to is that that software begins to get tooled and we're able to, to come out with a with a more functioning product, I, I, I guess it just it's confusing to me is why the people at the Raspberry Pi Foundation wouldn't have tested with Raspbian and said, "Hey, here is the problem, and here's how we go about fixing it," or hold off on the release of the thing, uh, you know, uh, until they do. And, and I guess part of the part of my frustration comes from the fact that it seems like this is a recurring theme for the Raspberry Pis, right? They 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 promise X Y Z, and then the delivery is always it's not bad, it's just it's a little bit short of X Y Z. Um, you know, so, you know, you look at the, the, the Pi 3 and, and, and the Pi 2 and the Pi 1, they almost perform perfectly. It just, there's like everything they quite aimed t- 
to 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 nail they just fell just a little bit short and i feel like that's where we come back with the with the pi 4 but i feel like there's absolutely a market for this kind of thing like i have a three-year-old that has been begging for a computer and i am hesitant to buy her a an actual like four or five hundred dollar laptop because i'm not convinced that she's responsible enough to handle it but i would buy her in a heartbeat a sixty dollar computer if it if I didn't have to worry about her hurting her hands on it and if it actually performed to specification, you know? Yeah. And quite often when it comes to the aftermarket cases that you can pick up for Raspberry Pis, most of them I see tend to include heat sinks and fans in them to keep the chip cool as a lot of people tend to overclock the chip. Right. So, and, and to be clear, you, we can do that, right? We can certainly, we can take cases that have active cooling and I'm sure that would well, actually, I, I can almost guarantee that would fix all of the heating cooling issues, right? Because it certainly doesn't get as hot as a processor like a traditional i7 or i5, and we can absolutely keep those things cool. But if we do that, does it not begin to change the application type of the of the environment that we have a device in? If you start adding active cooling to it, now it's no longer a device that you can clip to the back of a monitor and just become a little chip. It's no longer a device that you can hand your kids and just tell them to go in the back room and play with. Now it's a functional, legitimate computer and has to be treated like one that has 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 to be delivered proper power. It has to have proper cooling and thermal protection and all of that. That's true, but we've also been seeing them marketed as a desktop replacement as well. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. Yeah, I thank you very much for the comments. Again, uh, 855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. That is how you can join the program and become part of the conversation. They, you know, there's a lot of people that I think took what was supposed to be a learning tool and started putting it into environments that it never belonged into. And I kind of question if we haven't reached that point where the Raspberry Pi Foundation is trying to meet what they perceive are the demands of their potential future clients. And so as they look out, they say, well, these people are interested in this device, but they want dual monitors or they want more consistent power delivery. Or they want this, that, or the other gigabit gigabit ethernet for example four gigs of memory maybe we maybe we create a product for them and that's what they're trying to deliver but i really really want this thing to get worked out because there are so many cool applications i saw the folks that make the pi top if you're not familiar with it it's a lap it's a laptop enclosure that you place a raspberry pi into and uh, and then you have a raspberry pi laptop one of those things i would buy in a heartbeat if i could just purchase one but it's always for pre-order you gotta uh, yeah, if there's a waiting list or whatever, and I just don't really have the patience for that. Um, but the, their their Pi top for their Raspberry Pi four is so cool. It's essentially like a little outboard module. It almost looks kind of like a like two cell phones stacked on top of one another. And you place the Raspberry Pi four into this Pi top four enclosure, and then they have a what looks like a Microsoft Surface book and a keyboard that has a connector cable that runs into the Pi top four. Uh, housing unit and so then you have a full-on laptop that's connected to this little i don't know what you want to call it housing unit and you're able to run your raspberry pi 4 as a functioning laptop like that is so cool and it's absolutely the kind of conversation started that i'd like to have at a booth when we're doing live shows it's absolutely the kind of thing that i would like to show my kids it's absolutely the kind of things that i would like to be taking out in public and playing with and exposing other people to technology and having them come over and saying oh that's really cool why are you using that instead of a MacBook? And then have opening that opening up that conversation. And I think there's a lot of real world places that the Raspberry Pi could fill. And I feel like we're missing it not because uh, we don't the technology isn't there, but because of the implementation of the technology. And so, hopefully, I'm wrong. Hopefully, it is just a 
software limitation and, and it can be addressed and an update can be pushed. But I just wanted to make everybody aware that, you know, last week I was pretty happy about the release of the Pi 4 and I didn't really have anything negative to say about it, partly because I had not tried it yet. Um, and having some hands-on experience, it was not, it was not ideal. We'll just say that. Firefox on Android. So this has come, this comes to us from blog.mozilla.org and they are reinventing Firefox for Android. And, uh, oh, sorry, uh, there's somebody, I, no, it's no big deal. I, there's somebody else in the mumble room wanted to add on to the five comp four conversation. That's perfectly fine. What's up? Hey, Noah. Uh, so I think something that everyone kind of missed a bit was that the Raspberry Pi was never intended to be used for more than teaching kids how to That's right. assemble computers and then actually like do basic programming on it. But the unusual popularity that occurred after the Pi 1 led to an, an interesting pivot by the Raspberry Pi Foundation who needed, you know, money because uh, otherwise they can't further their own mission. Um, and so now we have these weird compute modules, we have this strange ecosystem, but uh, but the, the fundamental issue is like there's this tension where the, the Pi has to be affordable and it has to serve its an original purpose. Yes. Because, again, the Raspberry Pi is a foundation with the stated goal of helping children learn the ba the underlying, the underpinnings of modern computer technology. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, the Raspberry Pi 4, I unfortunately feel, I think is the first iteration of the Pi that moves away from that mission. And I think it kind of shows. So, like, the software stack, Raspbian, is actually, like, probably the worst distribution to run on the Raspberry Pi. Yes. Because it's still ARM v6 or ARM v7, I forget exactly, but, like, it's still 32-bit. It doesn't leverage the hardware all that well. And it is horribly unoptimized. If you use, like, Fedora ARM or Fedora IoT Edition or OpenMandriva or Ubuntu Mate or anything else, they'll be 64-bit ARM. They'll have newer kernels and stuff, but... The other bit that's a little bit of a problem is that uh, the Raspberry Pi Foundation just simply doesn't care about integrating the the changes they need to make to Linux and the operating system into the upstream project so the Raspberry Pi works better. So we get this weird degradation over time where it's like they drift more and more and it gets tougher for them to rebase each time and get things taken care of. It's people independent in the community outside of the Raspberry Pi, people outside of Broadcom, outside of all these that have been working on reworking all this and pushing it up and building it upstream and things like that. Like you, from what I've heard from in various places, like the Raspberry Pi Foundation basically doesn't help anyone make those things get any better. They don't provide any contacts or push anything forward. So that becomes a problem in itself. And fundamentally, the Raspberry Pi 4 is the first one that has equipment that is from this current generation in it. The chip, the VC5 is brand is relatively new. It came out a year or two ago and it was primarily intended for televisions and things like that to do media and to handle you know media player and uh htpc kind of workloads um it's definitely the it, probably not optimized for the raspberry pi's form factor or use cases and if you start adding things to try to make it fit it's obviously going to be the wrong model and at that point What's the point? Like, it's it doesn't serve its purpose. It's a bad computer in general. It makes ARM look bad, and it makes the ecosystem kind of stink. So what's the value in it? Boy, you're not just whistling Dixie when you talk about making ARM look bad. I was talking to an ARM developer back at Southeast Linux Fest, 
and uh, he said flat out, like when I, he told me that he was an ARM developer, I said, "Oh, that's cool. Uh, what do you think of the Raspberry Pi?" Because that's my that's my go to thing. Like when somebody says ARM, I think of Pi because that's the ARM architecture I'm most familiar with, or the thing that I I see most implemented. And he was furious. He was like, "I I hate the things. I can't stand them. They're they they they're great for playing with. They're terrible for any sort of actual, uh, real life production job. But you should never use one." And I was, and you know, it was it was kind of a conversation killer. But you know, he was very passionate about the fact that it gives ARM a bad name. So you're right about that. The other thing I question is, as you were giving your very eloquent explanation of why you think their purpose has changed, have we not made a change from teaching to do it? yourself i mean is that what they're basing off of now and they're catering more to the diy crowd than the original concept of teaching children python so i think they're not doing either of them which is the real problem i think they're actually Mm. moving towards industrial scale stuff which is the worst option because now you have all you have different considerations in industrial scale you don't really care whether the heat delivery is good enough or whether the dis- or, or whether the clock is a- is actually you know the clock and the heat the the heat that gives off from the chip and all these other things will even matter because you know what it's going to be in a cooled environment with a dedicated heat sink and all of these things you know blah 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 so it won't even matter they won't even run raspbian like Freaking! I've I've seen televisions with builds of of Yocto or WebOS on it, and they put that on there, and they're they're putting media center PCs and stuff like that on it. Nobody's like nobody seriously uses Raspbian for this stuff, mm-hmm. and so like it's just it's gradually weakening to the point that it's like, what is the point of a Raspberry Pi? And the worst part about it, like overall, the worst part is that the ARM ecosystem doesn't care. Like, if you talk to Lenaro or if you talk to Arm Holdings or anyone else around this, like, they'll say, oh, yeah, there's the 96 boards and the stuff like that. But, you know, 96 boards, consumer edition, the ones that were supposed to be cheap boards, there's not a single one available for you to purchase today. Not, not one. You can't find any. The Enterprise Edition ones, they're out of the price range. And in most cases, they require special equipment to actually be set up. The... Uh, the the generally available super le- super easy to integrate uh, ARM motherboards that were like ATX style, like what AMD is doing, they're all dead. Like they don't make any ARM equipment that's useful. Everyone's like, well, the uh, you have to use U-boot or custom bootloaders for all the embedded mobile stuff, and it's like the server stuff uses a standard ACPI SBSA UFE, UFE stuff, and there's an eBBR standard that was brand new that nobody's adopting right now, and it's just like, what the hell is going on there? It's just, everything is a complete mess in the ARM ecosystem, and the problem is nobody cares. Right. Let, let me ask you this. As somebody who is uh, clearly very passionate about ARM in- infrastructure, is there an alternative to the pie that you say, hey, this is a better representation of what the ARM processor can do? Three years ago, I would have given you. I would be able to give you an answer. Today, I can't. Almost all of the alternatives are dead. Um, maybe the Pine sixty four would be good if the if it wasn't using the um, the Sunchi chip, the All Winner, because All Winner is poorly supported in in Linux as a whole, and everything has to be reverse engineered. And the company that actually makes those drivers, you know, All Winner, they're they're actively violating the GPL. They haven't distributed any of the drivers that the source code form. They're just not very helpful, and it just ruins everything. Uh, so, like, there's the Pine 64, and they've got that Pine book, which is great, but the problem is you can't really do anything with it because, like, even upgrading or doing your own, you know, setting up your own platform or whatever, it's just, you're just screwed. 
And my current hope right now is that in Risk Five there will be something, but like my hopes are very dim there because like people are already making the same mistakes they made at ARM. They're saying, "All right, it's okay to have custom bootloader codes. Everything's going to be able to work. You know, whatever way you want, you can trim instructions. Like you can." There are already, only, I think, six or seven different instruction set permutations mm -hmm. for Risk Five on 64-bit, and there's more if you add 32-bit only variants. Like, what the hell? Nobody is thinking yeah. straight at all. Yeah, and Ar and ARM was a mess before. Like with ARM 64, they finally standardized the instruction set, but it took almost what 15 years for that to happen. It's completely ridiculous. Yeah, and you know, what's interesting about that is it's not just ARM that is competing for Intel's market share anymore. Now you've got things like, uh, you know, PowerPC that are coming and, and, and trying to take a slice of the pie. So that means that every infrastructure and every processor has to be really on their game, bringing something to the market. And you're right. If it's not doing one thing well and concentrating on one thing, they have no chance of stealing Intel's market share. Yeah, so like the only, the best things I the thing I I have a small bit of hope for the embedded and hobbyist space. Maybe Risk Five will take off, and they'll somebody will be smart, and actually do something like oh we're gonna have a standardized boot process that every operating system has to follow. It's gonna be built into the specification of how Risk Five boards will work, and I don't know. But then on the other side, there's power, which actually holy crap. Power is actually approaching affordability zone now. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I saw there. I don't know if you followed. The, so the latest one, uh, the latest one they had out was I think it was under two grand now to buy a to, to power uh, to buy a, a power workstation. And I, I was like, man, if it drops just a little bit more, I'm totally getting one into and and making my daily driver and just see how far I can push that thing. So like the 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 interesting thing is like it's a catch twenty two for making it affordable. Like if people aren't buying it on the early curve. And then and feeding that right. it it just doesn't get any better. Sure, so, because there's not demand to make more to, to, to make more bulk orders right now. There, it's essentially a a boutique uh, computer that you're buying. Exactly. Oh, that was an awesome discussion, man. I really th I thank you very much for the for for the discussion. I'll tell you one last thing too. Just in general, I'll just throw this out there. I wish we could revisit the whole um the the whole the loading of operating systems onto the Pi. It would be really great if we were at a point where you could load software on the Pi the same way that you load software on every other computer. Because The reason I say that is because we're talking about teaching kids about computers, and uh, both the Pi of, is the weirdest device. Yes, it, and, it, and it doesn't. And the problem is, it doesn't mimic the workflow of literally anything else. And so I, I've taught my it son from the GPU. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My, my son, I showed showed him how to flash an SD card, and so I, I I'm teaching him how to do that. And then he goes to sit on his laptop, and he's he's trying to ask me how to flash his hard drive. I'm like, well, it doesn't work like that, dude, on this computer. And I'm like, wait, that's a disconnect from teaching kids about computers because that's not the way we boot any other computer. So it yeah, just, no, it, it it it's absolute not. First of all, the fact that you have to configure a GPU to boot the CPUs stupid. Yeah, yeah, it's no good. I appreciate it again. Thanks, thanks again for the uh, for the comments. It's absolutely fantastic. I love this. Is what I love about the Ask Noah community because everybody has more, uh, has a lot more insight and thoughts than what I have, and and can add a lot more information than I'd be able to add. Uh, say, check this out. So Firefox is reinventing the browser on mobile and this is something I'm very excited about as a person who actually used or has continues to use Chrome on on, on the mobile device so fa uh, Firefox preview is up to 2x faster than previous versions of Firefox for Android fast by design with a minimalist start screen bottom navigation bar uh, it allows you to help 
stay more organized that allows with a, a better sense of, of collection and features that help you save and organize and share collections of various sites and quickly return to those. Um, obviously being Firefox, they offer tracking by default. And what's interesting, I, I, everybody keeps asking me every time I run into somebody and I have these side street conversations, what is the selling advantage of Firefox or why should people care about Firefox, particularly at a time where the blink engine or where, where my, both Microsoft Windows and Google are both teaming up and essentially using the same engine on the back end. And that leaves us with just like 10, basically just like 10% of the market share on Firefox. And that is, that is frustrating because it, 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 it scares a lot of people to include myself that we're going to reach a point where Firefox is no longer a viable, uh, you know, Mozilla is no longer a viable option to keep doing a web browser because it's just competing with such a small market share. And, you know, the argument against that, of course, is, well, we still have Evaldi and Opera and all of these other esoteric browsers that exist and people are very passionate and they continue to use them. So there's no reason to suggest that Firefox won't. Well, the introduction of Firefox for mobile makes a lot of sense because they are going back to what Mozilla has always done best. And that is privacy privacy by default privacy uh as as a focus of their company privacy as something that they are going to espouse and create products around i we were talking we didn't I, i'm not talking about it in this show but uh the podcast i do on sunday we were talking about the fact that we have a uh, uh, there, there is a add-on that essentially opens up like a hundred tabs and it's called track this and the idea is to totally screw up uh, people who are trying to, or the, the companies that are trying to track you. And so we covered that quite a bit on Destination Linux and dug into it. That's an absolutely fantastic idea. And it's something that Firefox is doing really well. So I got super excited when I saw that Firefox is now available or they are trying to reinvent uh, Firefox for mobile. And if you go over, we'll have the, the article linked in the show notes. You can get those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. It's really interesting the way that they organize this collections thing, the way that they they have screen caps so you can actually see what it would look like. And then that bottom navigation bar uh, is, is actually pretty cool. It's a super fast browser. And that was actually what left... Uh, why I left Firefox on mobile to begin with was Chrome was just quite frankly, it was a faster, more reliable browser than Firefox was on mobile. Now I've used Firefox, my one and only browser the entire time that I have, that I've been using mobile operating systems. But you know what? Uh, at the end of the day, um, if it doesn't work on a, on a, on a computer like my cell phone, which already has limited resources, I can't really be bothered with the, extra processing task of running, you know, more bloated or heavier software. And so Firefox just didn't perform well for the, for me in that realm. And so to see that kind of come back is, is pretty exciting. So we'll have uh, the entire article for Mozilla linked in the show notes, but a very exciting uh, progression from the Mozilla team. And they're doing an absolutely fantastic job. EFF.org. There is an interesting piece of bipartisan legislation that protects data at the border. And it's called... The Protecting Data at the Border Act. I know. Where do they get that, right? Border officers under this act would be required to get a warrant before searching a traveler's electronic device. And uh, so last month, the bill was reintroduced by U.S. Senator uh, Senator Ron Wyden, uh, a Democrat from Oregon, and Senator Rand Paul, a Republican from Kentucky. It's co-sponsored. Well, it doesn't matter who, all the people that were involved. But bottom line is, is that there was a bill that came to the House. And the idea is that your cell phone or your laptop um, can tell somebody else a whole lot of information about you. And modern electronic devices 
reveal all sorts of connections that wouldn't be contained inside of a traditional search warrant. So consider this. You are a person and you are walking uh, in an airport and you are suspected of murder. And so the police arrest you at the gate and they decide that they're going to search your belongings. They go through a judge, they get a warrant, they begin the search proceedings and uh, they find a camera. And so they go to the judge and they say, hey, we think this might be might contain material evidence to the crime that we suspect this person of might prove that they've actually committed the crime. Can we look through the realm of film? And the, the judge says yes. And so they take the film, they process it, they get the, the the pictures back and they look through and there's 24 pictures of you on your vacation. And either they find evidence of the crime they suspected you of or they don't. But the bottom line is they got access to 24 pictures. They looked at them and that was the end of it. Imagine in 2019 or 2020 or 2021 or whatever year in the future that we're talking about hypothetically, and you're going through the airport and you're stopped and the officer says, Hey, I need to look at your phone. I need to, you know, same story. We think that there might be evidence on your phone that links you to this crime that we suspect you to. They're not getting 24 pictures. They're not getting 2,400 pictures. They're getting every photo you ever took that automatically backed up to Google drive since the inception of Google drive and Google photos, like Every single photo. In addition to that, if you're signed into Telegram, they get access to Telegram. They get access to your email. They get access to all the stuff that's actually stored on your device, which, quite frankly, these days isn't much. But all of these cloud-connected accounts where everybody keeps looking for, quote-unquote, unlimited storage, right? I have a G Suite account for the sole purpose of the fact that there is unlimited storage on my Google Drive account. I don't use it for anything personal or private. I just use it to stash a lot of stuff that I wouldn't be able to afford to store otherwise, or I'd have to, or I shouldn't say I couldn't afford, but I choose not to. Uh, they're going to have access to all of that stuff. And so there is a major, major rework that is required uh, inside of the United States, frankly, is required worldwide. But we, there's a major rework that we really have to get to, to, uh, to, I guess, reflect how we treat data in society nowadays, because it's very different from the time that we had crafted uh, the original privacy laws. And as I read through this bill and as I read the EFSF's take on it, I think this is a really fantastic idea because at a border crossing, you're in a very vulnerable position, right? So if you're coming, let's say you're traveling to another country, you've gotten on a plane, you've flown eight, nine, 10 hours. The border agent has the, is fully within their right to refuse your entry into the country, in which case you're stuck in the airport until you can get a, fl back, a flight back home to your own country. Um, and so that's, that's a, that's a, they're starting in a massive position of power to begin with, and their search capabilities are almost endless, right? Even coming back into the United States, as a United States citizen, they, can't, they, they literally can't refuse me entry into my home country, right? So one way or another, they have to let me into the country, but they can verify that I'm not, quote-unquote, smuggling anything or performing illegal activities. And as part of that, they search your property and as part of your property, they search your electronic devices. Now I have stood firm. I have never ever, I, my laptop is encrypted with Lux and woe be it to the person who wants to get through that encryption password. Anybody that's ever, uh, that's ever seen, not see me type it, but watch the amount of time it takes to enter is enter it knows, uh, there's a lot there. So good luck, but that's not that, that is not something I'm willing to compromise on. And so, and I've, I've said flat out point blank to border agents that have asked if they can search or look, I'm sure it's encrypted and don't ask cause we're not decrypting it. So, and I am willing to stand by that to the point that I'm willing to lose the laptop over it. If they confiscate it indefinitely, I would live with that over giving them access to my data. And it's not that I have anything particular to hide, uh, anything that is private. I wouldn't travel with anyway. Uh, it's, it's a principal thing. 
So I'm glad to see that the EFF once again is on the fighting front of this and they're making progress. That's, I'm happy to see that. You too can add your voice to the conversation. You can also ask your questions at live at asknoahshow.com or give us feedback about the program. We'd love to hear that. Uh, Aaron writes in and says, Hi Noah, I have enjoyed the Living H out of your podcast. There is absolutely no Living H left in any of your shows. I done enjoyed it all out. Go ahead and check. I'll wait. Seriously, though, I'm a regular and very grateful listener. Please keep it up. I had a question for you. The company IT guy, small company, one guy, mentioned that he's looking for something that will enable us to have telemeetings regularly as we're very geographically separated. I believe that we even have a couple in Minot, North Dakota. Any open source suggestions come to mind? He's looking for something that can handle small to large meetings. We're still in the round 100 employees, but uh, so more than 300, I believe. So no more than 300, I believe, video with an option to record, chat feature, desktop sharing, so on and so forth. For some reason, TeamViewer comes to mind. I thought I remembered hearing or reading about it, that there were some security issues with it. Full disclosure, I'm not an IT guy. I used to be an Air Force medic, got hit by the Linux bug, and uh, and that's when I started working as a medical simulations operator. So please don't assume I know anything, because I don't. Any trees you can point me to, start barking up. Thanks again for all the awesome information you're putting out there. Take care. Sincerely, Aaron. So a couple of things there. First of all, uh, let's start, let's work backwards. So TeamViewer is remote control software. So it's designed to remote into another machine and control it remotely. It would not be very useful to you at all uh, as far as teleconferencing goes. If you want the open source solution, the open source solution, the only thing that comes even close to what you're talking about would be Jitsi or Jitsi Meet. And uh, Jitsi Meet is going to allow you to record. It's going to allow you to do video conferencing. It's going to allow you to do text chat. It's going to be completely open source. It's going to be infrastructure that you own. It's going to run on your own server. All of the things that we like. Here's the problem with it. It sucks. Uh, I'm the first person to beat the drum of open source uh, when it works. But at the end of the day, I still have a business to run and I still have to be able to get things done. So my hard line in the sand, and I've been fairly clear about this in the past, is I just need it to run on Linux. The software license is a separate issue. Do I think that all software should be licensed under the GPL? Yes. If there's an option to use open source and free software, will I use it? Yes. Am I going to use a piece of open source, free and open source software just because of its license? If there's something else that runs on Linux that does the job and meets the requirements and does them better? No. Uh, so the answer, if if I woke up in your shoes and I was the IT, IT guy for, that, for your particular company, uh, what would I do? I would go with the Zoom or BlueJeans. Uh, BlueJeans I would go with because Red Hat uses them and they're a very, very popular uh, software and it seems to work very well for a company like Red Hat. And if it works for well for a company like Red Hat, it work well for you. Personally, I would choose Zoom because it's you can get started for free. It doesn't cost anything. I have, We use it every single week to record Destination Linux and it works absolutely flawlessly. We've never had an issue with it. You can have as many participants as you want. It runs on Linux. You can run it on Windows. You can run it on Mac. They even have a mobile app. All of those things are going to work very, very well. Um, Kondo Kudo says BlueJeans no longer requires uh, a browser extension to work. It's purely WebRTC. And actually, I think I was familiar with that because we did a remote presentation from somebody uh, from Red Hat. And yeah, he didn't have to do anything particularly special to get it to work. So I know that's not the free and open source answer you were probably looking for, but it is. That's what I would do if you want it to work, especially if you want to pitch a solution to your boss or to the IT guy that he's going to look at and say, yeah, that's uh, that's a really good idea. That works really well. And Thanks for the recommendation. So, blue jeans or Zoom. Hey, by the way, we want you to check out LinuxDelta.com. If you haven't done it, uh, 
I really appreciate everybody who has submitted their feedback at linuxdelta.com. The site continues to grow. It's the community hub to help people connect with their experiences with various Linux distribution. We would love you to do that. We've now added the option to not rate something. So if you decide something is not for you or is not for, like you have not tried that distro for server or for desktop, now you have the option of clicking not applicable. So please do that, linuxdelta.com. We'd love to keep that site going. We'd love to get your feedback. Hey, the Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone systems. Simon Quigley stepping in as producer this hour. This hour of the show may be over. Plenty more content for you at asknoahshow.com. See you next week.